Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Media. Hello and welcome to Cool People Who Did Stuff That Is Cool. I feel like there'd be a better way to, but like just did cool stuff. I think that'd be better. Uh, I'm Margaret Kiljoy and I'm usually your host, but I'm not today because today is another episode of Ran Explains Things to Me. The pun that some tiny percentage of the guests, uh, guests, listeners, listeners will find funny. It's an even smaller portion of the percentage of listeners who get the joke. We'll be the ones who actually find it funny. Ren is explaining things to me. Ren or I. Hi, Ren. How are you? Please say Good. Me. How are you doing? Okay. I, you know, you're, you're the podcaster here, so. <laughs> uh, that's embarrassing. Okay. And Ren is our guest host. This is part two of a two-parter. Although if you only care about food co-ops and you don't care about free bread, then I guess you could start here. But you couldn't start until we introduce Sophie. Hey. Hi, Sophie. Hi. Hi, Ren. Hi. This How's is, it going? As everything's, everything's going very, very well. I'm so excited for part two. Yeah. yeah. And feeling better about food co-ops. Yay. Which is the spoiler. I mean, it's not a spoiler for anyone. This, this might make you feel more interested in the food co-op history, but it won't make you feel better about food co-ops. I hate to... Oh, okay. I hate to admit, yeah. Well, it will make me feel better about, it won't make change how I feel about Ian. It's already very positive. Ian is our audio engineer. Hi, Ian. Hey, Ian. Hey, Ian. Hello, this is Ian. Yeah, I'm sad Ian's not here right now. What? We just heard him. (laughs) (laughs) I'm making it sound like I'm lying when I said that. I said last time that I don't drink caffeine and it sounds like I'm lying right now. Ian is our audio engineer. I already said that. Unwoman did our theme music. And today, food co-ops. Yeah, so food co-ops. So similar to the last one, what comes to mind when you think about food co-ops? Overpriced food. Uh Uh-huh. There goes the neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but also the place that has the vegan food and yeah. also 
the place where people argue about the ethics of shoplifting from. Yep, all of these things. <laughs> that's it. That's you nailed it. Sophie, yeah. <laughs> that's all. That's all the things. So I definitely think of co-ops, right? As these really fancy independent grocery stores that regular people can't afford to shop at. Um, I feel incredibly privileged to be able to afford groceries on a regular basis, and I cannot afford to shop at the Tucson Food Co-op. So I was surprised when, while looking into the co-op here in Tucson, which completely fits that stereotype now, I discovered that it actually has this really radical history and that actually most food co-ops in the United States do as well. Because the concept of it seems really good, right? Like, let's all pitch in together to buy food in bulk. Isn't that the, that's, to Uh to give you the, what I think I know, I think a bunch of people, probably Finns and Swedes, because they're in Minnesota and shit, uh, were like, what if we all pitch in together and, or Wisconsin, and what if we all pitch in together and buy food in bulk together as if we are the store? That's like my, that's what I think I know about food co-op history. So there might be a tie-in with Wisconsin Finns and Swedes, but I don't know it. Um, no, I don't. We know. we will be in Minnesota in a in a little bit in this episode, but um, yeah. But what I know of sort of the roots of co-ops, I'm going to focus on the ones that emerged out of the counterculture of the 60s and 70s. But of course, there were other co-ops, right, that um, started long before then. And I should say, obviously, people have been pooling resources to secure food all over the world since time immemorial, just because. Some folks are now calling it a food co-op. Doesn't mean that it's a new thing. But an early example of a consumer cooperative that people often point to was founded in, I think it's Rochdale or Rockdale, England in 1844. A group of weavers who had just lost a strike for better wages pooled their money to open a store and they sold basic foodstuffs, stuff like flour, oats, sugar, and butter. They also created a set of Rochdale principles, ideals that their co-op would run on. And these included things like voluntary and open membership, democratic member control, autonomy and independence, and cooperation among cooperatives. And the Rochdale movement inspired thousands of consumer cooperatives to open across the United States, although most of these didn't last very long. And there was also a second wave of consumer cooperatives that arose from the Great Depression, but waned during World War II. And the exception was that some of the farmers' cooperatives have sort of lingered on and one of the ones that, and I don't know how, you know, they're a big company. I'm not going to like mm-hmm. claim that they're like super cool or radical in any way. But one of the farmers cooperatives that still exists is Tillamook, which is my huh. cheese and ice cream brand of choice. Okay. Do you want to like, um, when you keep saying like consumer cooperative, and I, I know yeah. what that means, yeah, but yeah. do you want to talk about like that versus a worker cooperative or something or? Yeah, so this is mostly focusing on com- consumer cooperatives, right? So people yeah. aren't like pooling their labor to achieve something. In Instead, the same- it's the con- yeah, it's, it's yeah. owned by the people who shop there rather than owned yes. by the workers. Is by that the-, the workers? Yeah, so it's yeah, not okay. like a bunch of people, you know, working together to. Although it gets really blurry when we go into the early history of like the countercultural food co-ops because it they were kind of like both workers and consumers okay. cooperatives. Cool. And I think that the farmers' cooperatives were workers' cooperatives and are workers' cooperatives. So I'm kind of okay. blurring that a little bit. Okay. Um, I just wanted to, like, because yeah. you were saying that, and I was, like, wanted to, yeah, clarify it. Totally, yeah. That's a really great clarification. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is mostly consumer cooperatives. It's people pooling money and resources to be able to get products at a cheaper rate, for the most part. Then there's also this extensive history of black-led farming and grocery cooperatives that emerges— out of the civil rights movement. 
And most famously, yeah, this is another, like, could do a whole episode on this. Um, Mm -hmm. But most famously, Fannie Lou Hamer, the 20th Mm -hmm. child of sharecroppers who became a really important civil rights organizer, led the effort to create the Freedom Farm in Sunflower County, Mississippi. It was founded on 40 acres in 67. It grew to 700 acres at its peak. Um, And it was farmed cooperatively by around 1,500 families. It included community gardens, subsistence farms, a catfish cooperative. There was land for cattle, a pig cooperative. There were cash crops that were raised to pay the mortgage on the land. There was also a tool bank and many, many other things. And while the cooperative had black leadership and while because of Mm -hmm. the demographics of the county and the impacts of racism, it primarily served black families. The resources were available to poor white families as well. And there were some that were part of the Freedom Farm or they were available to anyone, but demographically that that other contingent usually meant poor white families. And we talked a little bit um, about her, I think, in the episode that we did about birth control, people being able to choose whether mm-hmm. or not to have children. I think it was her who um, was uh, forced to not be able to have children by the state as part of a racist eugenicist policy. She was. Yeah, yeah. she was. Absolutely. And then there's like all of this. I actually know a little bit more about this part where there's like, like the, for example, there's the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which is an organization that um, works to keep farming land in black hands because you have um, a lot of, basically over the past hundred years, the amount of land owned by black people in the South and U.S. South has like dropped dramatically as a result of all these racist practices. And so cooperatives are coming together to try and like preserve all of that. And they've been doing it for a long time. Anyway, I got really excited about this. Please continue. Yeah, yeah, they have for a really long time. And the Southern, wait, the Southern Federation of Cooperatives, is that what you just said? Uh, Federation of Southern Cooperatives. Federation uh, of Southern Cooperatives, yeah. That I gets think covered. that's the name, right? Oh, sick, cool. Also, not in my scripts, but also in, in this book that I learned a lot about the Freedom Farm in, um, which mm-hmm. is Monica M. White's Freedom Farmers. And that's a really cool thing to check out if you want to learn more about this stuff. And so, unfortunately, for many of the above-mentioned reasons, the Freedom Farm shut down in 1976, just a year before Hamer's death. But it achieved a great deal in the nine years of its existence. And I have a quote here from Monica M. White, who wrote that book, Freedom Farmers, um, where uh, she talks about the importance of the Freedom Farm. She says, well, it is important to analyze the problems that ultimately led to the demise of the organization in 1975. We should not undervalue its successes given its time, scope, intention, and liberatory vision, as well as the fact that this vision was enacted within a pervasively oppressive and racially hostile environment, the movement, while relatively short-lived, was a manifestation of self-reliance and the capacity of a community to come together for the provision of food, housing, shelter, education, healthcare, and employment. Yeah. So super, super important. And other civil rights organizers, such as Bob Moses and Stokely Carmichael, also encouraged Black communities to start cooperative food-buying clubs to establish economic independence in a white supremacist society. Like previous grocery store co-op waves, a lot of these buying clubs were short-lived, and there's not a ton of records on how many were formed. And then other buying clubs were also started during the War on Poverty, which was a program of the national government in the mid-60s that attempted to respond to a poverty rate of 19%. These included, for example, a co-op started by Pedro Otero at the Puerto Rico Center on New York's Lower East Side, among others. Is Bob Moses the same person as Robert Moses? Because Robert Moses was the guy who fucking um, fucked up no. the urban planning in, in New York. So no. that, okay. 
Because I was like, I was like, totally different. I was like, these are two very different people with <laughs> yeah, the same no. name. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Yeah, no, uh, Bob Moses is a civil rights organizer. Um, Robert but, Moses is. I mean, that's just unfortunate. Not, to not the, a friend of the pod. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. He's, yeah. he's a friend of Behind the Bastards. Listen to those episodes. Yeah. So, so there were, you know, there were precedents, right? These countercultural co-ops don't just spring out of nowhere. And I mm-hmm. wanted to make sure to kind of emphasize that. But you do have this interest in organic food, which is growing during the late 60s and early 70s. Um, you know, we touched on this in the first part of this with the diggers and the whole wheat bread. Yeah. This interest was driven by a lot of different things. But one important one was the skepticism of additives and pesticides, especially in the wake of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, a book I have uh, uh-huh. not read, but according to things I've read about it, it called out indiscriminate pesticide use, specifically the use of DDT for its impact on the environment. Um, kind as of well like as health started out. the modern environmental movement, I think. Sort of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's what, yeah. I know, totally. I've read people say that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure there's like more more detail and nuance there, but yeah. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And, you know, DDT had health effects, including cancer. There was also, like, a general countercultural distrust of U.S. processed foods, which mm-hmm. were pretty much all that was available at mainstream supermarkets. So the political left believed that hearty natural foods like a whole wheat bread or granola would actually, like, sustain people longer during revolutionary activity. They're all like, bring your whole wheat bread and granola to the building occupation, you know? So there's this whole <laughs> idea about this kind of food. That's so sweet. I know. And the commune movement had also started, right? So hippies are moving from cities to rural land where they're growing their own food, further Mm -hmm. driving an interest in organic produce and, like, creating excess produce that, you know, maybe could do well to be sold somewhere. I find it really interesting because we talk about, well, you don't. A lot of people talk about food as if it's sort of, like, tangential to, like, revolutionary stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think about, like... And obviously, dietary choices is complicated and things like that. But I, I remember I had been vegan for about a year before I became an anarchist. And I got it uh, kettled in New York City by a bunch of cops. And I was like, and people were sharing food. And I was like, oh, no, I'm good. Because I was just, I didn't know any vegans. It was 2002. And someone was like, oh, no, it's vegan. And then gave me food. And I was like, I found my people. Mm-hmm. You know? And like ways of choosing how to eat. And like reading about my my interest and my knowledge has been more like vegetarians and stuff uh-huh. like that, right? But like, like I, I, we just did a bunch of episodes about, um, you know, these like revolutionaries in Argentina a hundred years ago and like, and they were like straight edge vegan. Like they were, you know, and I'm like, or they were vegetarian, but the word vegan, whatever. And it's just so interesting that this stuff, like even the like, oh, we all eat whole wheat bread or we eat granola or like, you know, um, let's go eat sprouts so we have more energy to overthrow the government or like refined sugar is going to just drain all your energy or whatever like it's it's cool to me that this stuff is part of it and that people see it as part of it obviously it gets i'm almost done with this rant but like it obviously gets recuperated and all this like weird stuff where like all the right-wing people are like you know talking about sometimes very similar things but anyway sorry yeah and there's like a Uh whole other thread of inquiry with this stuff where they it is really about looking at the foods and the foods Mm -hmm. that people were choosing to eat and the recipes that were being created both in in the sense that you're talking about but then also sort of like this weird 
reoccurring of, or not weird, but complicated reoccurring of peasant food and cultural appropriation and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And that this won't that won't be covered as much, but it is very fascinating. And it's something that I've always thought that if I were going to go back into food co-ops and look at them more, um, looking at that angle would be really, really cool. Yeah. So, but this is going to be more about like the structure of trying to create this like anti-capitalist food buying system that then of course spoiler alert we'll get co-opted in the end um, co-opted <laughs> co-opted yeah co-ops getting co-opted uh, I get it. that's yeah. that's where the word co-opted comes from is, it's like what happened to the co-ops this yeah. is not an actual etymology okay no so don't you're listen saying, to us yeah Countercultural co-ops were a reaction to to mainstream there were mainstream health food stores they had products that hippie, hippies and leftists wanted to eat, but they were too expensive to shop at. Mm-hmm. And they were also a reaction to old school consumer co-ops, which, to quote Warren Belasco, author of Appetite for Change, amazing food historian, uh, were designed to supplement, not subvert capitalism and didn't really stock organic or whole grain foods. Right. So you have the fancy health food store that has your organic and whole grain foods. And then you have your old school consumer cooperatives where you could just get the, you know, big box foods that you could get anywhere else just buying on a cooperative model. Okay. Um, you know what else people can buy? This is my ad transition. I liked it. Thanks. Yeah. There's some stuff that if you want to, it'd be really funny if like we actually got ads for a decent funny it'd be really nice if we had ads for decent things but uh-huh. some co here okay here's my sponsored by some food cooperatives in some cities still actually practice a model of trying to make food accessible and yes. offer discounts to people uh-huh. who are low income and like do all kinds of work to subvert this and so this is sponsored by but not that they gave us money but i just think are cool i'm gonna call them the actual co-ops very fair Sponsored by actual co-ops. Yeah. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful Beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And we're back talking about food co-ops. So the first of these co-ops, these countercultural co-ops, started as buying clubs. Mm-hmm. Buying clubs often referred to themselves as conspiracies. And while <laughs> food conspiracy may have been like a comment on the conspiracy of the U.S. government to cover up harmful chemicals in food, some of these buying clubs were inspired by how households or groups of friends would actually buy uh, marijuana and other drugs in bulk to get a lower Whoa. price. Hell yeah. So the name conspiracy also gestures at that kind of like extra legal buying that was happening. And they shifted that skill set towards getting bulk grains, produce, and other food items instead of simply drugs. They hit 30. And they were like, what if we get food instead? Yeah, that seems very possible. And yeah, now I'm curious. I wonder what the age range was because that that didn't, uh, yeah, that didn't come up too much in my research. But most of these buying clubs actually didn't last more than two years. And... This doesn't sound familiar to anyone who's done anti-capitalist organizing at all, but they too often depended on a key organizer. If that person mm. moved or burned out, the buying club would fizzle out. <laughs> yeah. And that said, some of them did successfully transition into brick-and-mortar stores, which is what would become food co-ops. And between five and 10,000 buying clubs and cooperative grocery stores combined opened across the U.S. during the 1970s. And I'm going to be referring to Tucson a lot because I did some research with um, some of the archives that uh, like the special collections that the university has with food co-ops or about our food co-op here in town. And so I'm going to refer to Tucson because I've done research, like primary source research about the Tucson food co-op. But a lot of the stuff I'm going to say actually just like applies to lots of food co-ops. Okay. So... Yeah, if I'm if I'm talking about Tucson, it's mostly just because it's like an example I have that I think is like pretty applicable to other places as well. Okay. So in Tucson, a buying club founded by the Marxist-Leninist John Brown Party opened a storefront in 1971 where they sold things like grains and greens to shoppers at, according to their first bylaws, the lowest possible prices. And they called themselves the Food Conspiracy, named after this idea, right, of the Food Conspiracy, which is hilarious because it's fancy and not radical now. It's still the Tucson Food Co-op's name today. Wait, it's still called? Oh, that's why it sounded familiar. Yeah, it's called the Food Conspiracy. Ah, now it just feels like a conspiracy to charge people too much money for food. I know, yeah. Unless you're listening and work there, in which case we're talking about something else. And don't get mad at us. Totally. Don't get mad at us. Lower your prices or offer free memberships to people who are low income. Maybe they already do. I don't know. Maybe they, I I haven't found information that they do, but I don't want to, things are changing all the time. So I don't want to say they don't. Yeah. We believe in you to be better. We do. So (laughs) we're inviting you in. (laughs) At first, these co ops ran on a participatory democracy model. So to become a member, you typically had to take on a certain amount of volunteer shifts. Some co-ops did have staff, and they'd often be paid a flat rate called a people's wage. Was this a shitty wage or a good wage? I'm sure it was shitty. Yeah. (laughs) But it was like everybody was getting paid shitty. I'll take a living wage instead (laughs) of a people's wage any day of the week. (laughs) 
staff and members would make decisions about the co-op collectively in meetings. And of course, because the patriarchy wasn't as everywhere, it's probably not surprising that male voices often mm-hmm. dominated these meetings. So there was like a lot of frustration among female and non-cis dude members. Yeah. And I know about some of this because a lot of food co-ops publish newsletters. And so I've spent a bunch of time looking at the Tucson Food Co-op newsletters from the 70s and 80s. And it's where I've gotten a lot of this info. And in their newsletters, minutes from the meetings were printed in each issue and often included a by-name summary of what those present committed to doing before the next meeting. So this is like public, like, (laughs) damn. Like the whole town knows that you said you would call call in the sugar order. Yeah. Yeah, I found, like, going through these, like, part of what was so amusing to me about them was, like, how much sort of the problems that they they bring up interpersonally trying to run these co-ops just reflect mm-hmm. collective projects today, right? Yeah. Um, and I can't imagine doing that, like, publishing a newsletter being like, Margaret said she would type up notes from the meeting or, you know. At one point when I I lived in Amsterdam in the squat, the, the squatter scene had a I, I want to say like weekly or monthly or something. They had a fucking zine that they put out that was just all of the gossip. It was like who's dating who and like who's mad and what happened. Whoa. It was terrifying that that existed. I was like, yeah. I don't want to do anything because I don't want to end up in this yeah. zine. These weren't quite like that. They mostly stuck to like who said, as you would say, put who would put in the sugar order, who would make yeah, sure okay. that like something was staffed. I hope um, that every now and then the notes were like, and then John went on too long, you know? Like, occasionally they are, yeah. And they're, yeah, they do They do have stuff like that. And there were also like debates on how the co-op should be run in the newsletter itself. The newsletter really was like this, I don't know, dialogue about the co-ops from mm-hmm. how much markup should be for non-members to whether or not it was acceptable to purchase white sugar. There is like this series of debates about white sugar that goes on for years in the <laughs> newsletters and i haven't read them all in detail all of these articles but i would love to go back and do so was there like an overall like did one side win i'm not sure i think they stock white sugar now so i okay. would say probably that side won but yeah. yeah so these newsletters alongside bulletin boards in the stores were a major way that food cops were sort of like a communications hub for the counterculture and radicals so okay. In the Food Conspiracy newsletter, you see them do things like reprint articles from social movements occurring at the time. And some of them, like a movement that seemed to be about like reclaiming the American Revolution as people's history, were definitely pretty cringy. Um, but there are also pieces about the 1971 Attica prison uprising, the American Indian movement, anarcho-feminism, queer issues. And a lot of these articles were accompanied by calls for tangible solidarity Uh, including some calls for funds to support the Attica Defense Committee and the 1973 AIM occupation of Wounded Knee. Nice. So, yeah, so there was, like, some pretty radical solidarity-based stuff going on, especially in these early newsletters. And it also included a lot of information about what was happening locally. So the second issue of the newsletter includes information about an upcoming march against the Vietnam War, an invitation to a down-home feast and strategy meeting at a park under the headline, Let's Eat Again Like We Did Last Summer. There is also a connection between this phrase that a friend found and a golf course occupation. Uh, The golf course, which still exists, is on Tucson's west side. And in 1971, a coalition of predominantly Mexican-American neighbors and supporters protested the absence of a community center in the neighborhood, and they turned the golf course into a people's park for an afternoon. 
So they like played games, hung out, ate food. Yeah, nice. So one thing that's cool is like, right, like every single town or city has these histories that are just, you know, we don't remember that are, you know, covered up in some way. And so going through these newsletters, which I think most co-ops printed newsletters, and there's a lot of archives that have them, um, is like a cool way to start to learn about some of this stuff. And then another piece decries the criminalization of vagrancy in the city. In it, uh, contributor Elizabeth Basquette Nuarez cited an incident in which a 65-year-old was thrown into jail because, as she writes, he had no job, adding, it seems here that the authorities want to hide the poor, which shows that the streets do not belong to the people. I would bet that the way that you can track when a co-op has gone from good co-op to bad co-op isn't even related to the prices. It's how they respond to vagrancy. I feel like Mm. that would be the like, do they lock their dumpsters or do they put all of the food that could possibly be eaten on top? You know, like this is where. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I actually very much agree with you. And the newsletters also track the proliferation of other food co-ops and other cooperative businesses. So in Tucson, several other food co-ops opened In 1973, they banded together to pull orders, and they started a distribution center called the People's Warehouse. It grew to serve co-ops throughout Arizona and New Mexico, and it included a trucking collective of folks. They would go pick up food from places in the Southwest, but also as far away as Minneapolis and Arkansas. There was also a cooperative bakery, cooperative bookstore, soybean guild, and a bike co-op. So (laughs) all sorts of other cooperative projects happening at this time. Yeah, so you could like, I mean, at that point, you start, that's when you actually start, like, supplanting the existing economy. That's where it gets interesting. Right, yeah. And so they put out a few issues that were, like, cooperative projects in Tucson, and there were just, like, so many things happening, which was very cool to see and very inspiring. Yeah. And then another thing that food co-ops, including but very much not limited to the Tucson one, offered Mm -hmm. was an alternative for shoppers who wanted to support the United Farm Workers boycotts. Since most grocery stores and the old-style consumer cooperatives bought non-union lettuce and grapes. Ah, and, uh-huh. Yeah. So you can buy your, like, non-scab food. Yep, yeah. So it became a place to buy non-scab food. Uh, the Tucson Newsletter urged shoppers to avoid Safeway and A&P, as well as to avoid certain wine companies. And they stock boycott Safeway buttons. And then also, when lettuce workers in central Arizona went on strike— in April 1973, the food conspiracy provided food and a donation of $100 a week. Um, but there was some strife because co-op members failed to turn out in force on the picket line. So a co-op member in the newsletter admonishes everyone else by writing, The farm workers came to us looking for bodies to picket for one day. Out of the thousands who shop and work at the conspiracy, only two of us were present. And when we arrived and they heard we were from the co-op, they asked where everyone else was. Where were you? That rules the salt newsletter. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just everyone being salty. Totally. <laughs> and then, yeah, while for most cops, only selling union lettuce and grapes was a given, there were a lot of debates around what other foods were okay to carry. Mm-hmm. So white flour and sugar were big no's for most co-ops at this time. Coffee and bananas were controversial because they were grown under exploitative labor conditions in the global south because of things like colonialism. Um, there were also debates around carrying meat. So Francis Moore Lapp's Diet for a Small Planet was a book that made an ecological argument for vegetarianism, which mm-hmm. was popular, but it wasn't ubiquitous. And it was also more common in California and the West versus the quote-unquote Marxist East. 
<laughs> which I find uh, hilarious as an East Coaster living in the Western half of the country. Uh-huh. I'm not even a Marxist, but I kind yeah. of am like, yeah, I'm from the Marxist East. I'm like, why are they over here? <laughs> Get rid of them. But not actually. I don't know. But like, yeah. yeah, I think I, I think I have a little bit of a need to be a tough guy that probably I need to work through. But well, um, it's also anyway. probably it's probably because you eat meat and I don't. Yeah, that's true. I that's do probably that's why I'm like, well, I'm with the West Coast on this one. <laughs> we <laughs> need know? a f- we need to flip flop ourselves. Yeah. yeah, or force the entire rest of the country to flip flop. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people fell in the middle. They believe that the issue is factory farmed meat and being so disconnected from the butchering process that meat was taken for granted, which I am not great at being careful about what meat I eat. I don't eat a lot of meat, but this is, I think, where I fall philosophically. Yeah, that's fair, yeah. And one of the biggest debates was this whole good food versus cheap food divide. So Mm -hmm. the good food contingent, Ah. often hippies. Uh Felt that it was the food co-op's job to provide an alternative to mass-produced junk food and to keep what they carried natural and organic. Mm -hmm. But some people, especially Marxists, felt that this hardline stance was elitist and isolated co-ops from the communities around them. Oh no, I've I've become more of a Marxist in this. (laughs) (laughs) While these debates happened in co-ops all across the country, including here in Tucson, in Minneapolis, this debate erupted into what is called the co-op wars. Oh, yeah. Are you ready to talk about the co-op wars? <laughs> I mean, all I can think of is there was, a, there was a vegan place that was expensive, but it was called Food Fight. That's what I'm imagining about to happen, not mm-hmm. the store, but that there's going to be yeah. a food fight. Co-op oh, there will, there will be a food fight. Oh, good. Um, but it takes a while to get there, actually. Okay. So this story is really wild. It contains lots of moving parts, and it's very like he said, she said, they said. So I'm going to do my best to summarize it without leaving out the juicy bits. Okay. And a lot of this info comes from a Minnesota PBS documentary that hilariously is narrated by Peter Coyote, the digger. Whoa. All but right. I'm bringing in some other sources as well, including from a book by Jonathan Kaufman called Hippie Food. Wait, which side was Peter? Did, was, did Peter try to be neutral or was Peter on like one side or the other? He literally just narrated the documentary. Okay, fine. Yeah, I, I don't know. know what the diggers were on this cheap versus good. I don't think they cared. You know, they were in California. Maybe I'm wrong. Apologies. We don't even have meat here. Yeah. Apologies (laughs) to Peter if you have a. The Diggers actually did serve meat. Oh, right. No, but I I was saying in in your West Coast, East Coast thing. Oh, totally. The dichotomy we were. Yeah, anyway. But yeah, apologies if you do have a side, but I, Peter Coyote, but I don't know what it is. So the 70s co-op movement was super prolific in Minnesota, which makes me wonder if your weird comment about Swedes and Finns starting co-ops has some truth to it now i want to figure this out i'm I'm under the impression that the previous the like turn of the century co-ops okay. a lot of them I'm, I'm under the impression that movement largely started in the upper midwest and wisconsin and i think minnesota being a, a fairly central part of it totally. and i actually was totally going off on a pure guess when i just know that a lot of the european immigrants to that area are from um, scandinavian countries they are and, yeah and finland yeah, and I should clarify when I say weird, I mean unusual, not bad weird. No, yeah, no. I, now I'm really curious about it. Yeah. But at the time of the co-op wars, which started in around 1975, there were two dozen co-ops in Minneapolis alongside their own people's warehouse, which distributed food not just to that city, but also to greater Minnesota, Wisconsin, and as far away as South Dakota. The Twin Cities actually had more food co-ops in the Bay Area, which is where the countercultural co-op movement, like so many other things of this era, got its start. 
Yeah. Um, but you know what else? Gotta start somewhere. Is it ads? It is. They they probably started a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, it just continues. It's just an onward force throughout history trying to shape the way that we make decisions. And that's, there were ads. There were ads in the food co-op newsletters too. That's so right. You know? all right, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they sold reg and gold just like us, <laughs> or a brand new car. Here's the ads. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, "Oh, wow, you look so good for your age." Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And we're back. Cool. So in the mid-70s, some of these co-op organizers from Minnesota moved out to a farm called Winding Road, where they got really into reading Mao, which was a whole trend in the 70s that I yeah. do not back up. And as they were in the process of becoming state communists, this figure named Smitty shows up. That was a pseudonym, and he was underground. No one knows who he really was, and there aren't any surviving pictures of him. Whoa. He was a former member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the South and the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement in Detroit. The documentary okay. tends to do this thing where it emphasizes that he provoked a lot of what happened, but watching it does kind of feel a bit like mostly white folks displacing blame on a black organizer, so I don't really know. I'm just going to okay. leave it there. Smitty, the folks at Winding Road Farm, and some others started a group called the Cooperative Organization, or the CO, which was Marxist-Leninist. And their hope was to sell mainstream food to working-class people and recruit them for the revolution. So the first thing they did was take over a failing Minneapolis cooperative called the Beanery. They spoke to the surrounding neighborhood about what people wanted and started selling things like white bread, Pepsi, canned goods, and sugar. 
And at one point, a cooperative organization member wrote and distributed a position paper, which seemed to be very common in those days, like sharing thoughts and ideas through these papers about what changes had happened at the beanery and why. And this included a condemnation of what the CO saw as an elitist and bourgeoisie counterculture. So this sets off a flurry of debate between the CO and the other contingent, who are referred to as both hippies and anarchists in what I've read and watched, and Mm -hmm. who had a much stronger critique of big agribusiness and more interest in natural foods. Okay. It is true that the co-op movement in Minneapolis was largely white, um, and in an attempt to rectify this, the CO collaborated with Mo Burton. He was a community organizer in the Bryant Central neighborhood. He was a former Black Panther. He had started community gardens in the neighborhood. And Mm -hmm. Burton, working with other community members in the CO, opened the Bryant Central Co-op to serve that neighborhood. Even though the CO helped start Bryant Central, the co-op was community-controlled, not controlled by the CO. And Gary Cunningham, who was Mo Burton's nephew and was involved at this time and is interviewed in the documentary, emphasizes this. The big move for the CO, however, was when they decided to take over the People's Warehouse at their policy review board meeting in April 1975. Is this through, like, entryism? Or, like, what is the way that they're taking over these places? Or maybe you're about to tell me. Yeah, so the first co-op was, like, a failing co-op. And because the CO had been involved in this earlier, or, you know, a lot of people in the CO had been part of starting co-ops, they... They were like, oh, buddies, we're willing to help run this failing co-op. And so they kind of like snuck in that way. But this, I'm about to tell you what happens, right? So when they decide to take over the people's warehouse. So the idea was to claim that the warehouse was poorly managed um, and use that as an excuse at the meeting to seize control. How they did that was in the middle of the meeting, members of the CO walked in and announced they were taking over because the warehouse wasn't an effective organization. The hippies responded by having people in the building. I know. So the hippies respond by having people in the building run the clock to make sure the CO couldn't take over, but the CO returned that night brandishing steel pipes. Ultimately, the CO expelled the hippies um, who camped out in the yard trying to figure out what to do. And then there was this interesting detail where a CO member was trying to break the windows of the warehouse. And since the hippie anarchists were ideologically opposed to calling the cops, instead of doing so, they sat on him so he couldn't get up and keep smashing the windows in. Hell yeah. That's practice again. We've come back to practice. For hours. Like for (laughs) hours and hours and hours. Um, Finally, there's a city council member aligned with the COs. Should you Mm -hmm. want to say fucking Marxists again? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Marxist. Uh-huh. Yeah. So a city council member aligned with the CO calls the cops and uh-huh. the cops facilitate doing their weird cop shit, getting people out. And in two or three days time, the CO had taken over the warehouse. Finally, uh, finally enough, the hippies started an alternative distribution warehouse that was much more successful and better run. They called it <laughs> Dance. Distributing Alliance of North County, etc., and use the Emma Goldman quote, if I can't dance, it's not my revolution, as a tagline. Hell yeah. And they also started a legal challenge for the People's Warehouse, which they ultimately won. Hell so, yeah, so now they have both warehouses. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this, that you know, the, the CO comes in with this, like, excuse that they're poorly run, but then the alternative that the hippie start is actually, like, better run is so yeah, funny yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah. 
And the co-op wars have also been described as a war of ideas, right? Where people would write these position papers. They'd be Mm -hmm. printed and distributed throughout the co-ops. And others would sit and read them. It was definitely a time when people were really thinking about politics very deeply and exchanging ideas within Minneapolis and also elsewhere. And what what years are we talking about right now? So like roughly the mid seventies. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't so, sure if we were into the eighties yet or not. Okay. No, not yet. And so the CO, after all of this, continues to target the hippies. They spread a rumor that one opponent was a drug dealer and they kicked in another one's door. So doing like pretty vicious things to try to like yeah. destroy the hippie anarchist co-ops. Yeah. And there were other CO attacks. You mean they, they thought that the ends justified the means? They, they thought I'm that the ends justified the means. Yeah. Shocked. <laughs> and then there were also CO attempts to take over different co-ops in that similar style of like barging in. Mm-hmm. And in one case, about 50 CO members tried to enter a co-op and they were rebuked by anarchists throwing sticks of butter at them. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> so All we right. have our food fight. All right. I also, you know, there's always the, like, uh, media spin of anarchists, like, throwing poop or something. And, yeah, yeah, but these these anarchists were just throwing butter. Yeah. So. Just overall better. Overall. Yeah. It's a general rule. If you're like, what should I throw? Throw some butter. Better than poop. Um, The CEO ultimately turned against Mo Burton and the black-led Bryant Central Co-op. Surprise, surprise. And their whole ends justify the means thing. And Bryant Central broke off from the CEO because the CEO wanted full control. And Bryant Central was, like, really committed to being community-run. And they started yeah. buying from the dance warehouse. So oh. the CEO spread rumors that Mo Burton was an opportunist. And they actually attacked the co-op, and they blew up his truck. Jesus. Um, I know. This escalated. Yep. And members of the Bryant Central community, including Gary Cunningham, had to defend the co-op from the CEO. So in the end, the CO dispersed. A lot of them went to Chicago. But the co-op wars had a big ideological impact, not just in Minneapolis, but across the U.S. co-op movement. These debates really came to the fore. Yeah. But who secretly won was a third secret party, capitalism. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Capitalism wins. Surprise. And That would have been a good ad transition. I know. (laughs) Speaking of capitalism, yeah. um, at the same time, right, at the same time that all this is happening in Minneapolis, co-ops in the U.S. in general are struggling financially. And mm. another split starts to emerge. On one side were these pragmatists who wanted to keep the stores open, even if it meant compromising on ideals, and who felt that moves needed to be made to draw in mainstream shoppers. Mm-hmm. On the other hand were the purists who were committed to loose collective process and carrying all natural foods. In Austin, um, which is one of the places that Jonathan Kaufman writes quite a bit about in his book, the pragmatists called themselves the wheelies, a shortening of wheeler dealers. And the purists called themselves the feelies. And They called themselves or were these what they got accused by the others? No, they seriously like called themselves the wheelies and the feelies. Damn. Yeah. All right. All yeah. right. And the Wheelies opened a food co-op, Wheatsville, which became the last food co-op at the hippie era in Austin. It's still open. And in 1979, they replaced their consensus-based, non-hierarchical decision-making structure with a manager. Uh, And to quote Jonathan Kaufman, who's writing about Wheatsville, the shift towards hierarchy and professionalization meant that Wheatsville was owned by its members, but it was no longer run by them. And you see this happening at co-ops all across the country. Yeah. 
And there's also, in, in addition to this like financial struggle that that people running co-ops were trying to figure out, there's also this larger cultural and political shift happening that made co-op members more comfortable with these changes, right? So we have the collapse of the Nixon administration and the end of the Vietnam War. And mm-hmm. we see many of the white and upwardly mobile young people who made up a significant contingent of the food co-op movement start to feel less alienated from formal political institutions, right? They start to get more drawn into electoral politics. Right. And you also see them getting older and drifting towards the mainstream, which is totally a stereotype, but also sometimes happens. Well, it was... Yeah. It was more true for that generation than it has been, say, for our generation, right? Just literally because Mm -hmm. the, the economy is getting worse instead of better right now, you know? Yeah. So, like... It's hard to sell out when no one's buying or whatever. Um, yes. But the, okay. But to think about the wheelies and the feelies really quick. Okay. Like one of the reasons that annoys me, but before I, um, actually before I started podcasting full time, my, my last employment was in uh, workers' cooperatives. Um, mm-hmm. I worked for a, um, a place called Seed Commons that finances worker cooperatives and is uh, a really beautiful and interesting structure all on its own. And, and these are worker cooperatives, not, not consumer cooperatives, but it's a lot of like restaurants. It's a lot of, um, uh, I mostly thought about the restaurants, but it, it, a lot of different places that are forming these worker cooperatives. Baltimore is a really good example of a city that is becoming kind of a cooperative city mm-hmm. because of the work that is being put in by these like really actually still radical cooperatives. And what's interesting to me, so in my mind, I'm like making this dichotomy between like wheelies and feelies like this is like part of the problem right because then you're like oh well pragmatism i guess we should be pragmatists it's like one of the things that happened in 2020 is that none of the cooperatives we financed through seed commons had to permanently shut their doors and these are restaurants during fucking 2020 Mm -hmm. because actually workplace democracy the idea of not having bosses was is a more economically like uh, resilient model for crisis than a top-down structure. And so you, we have all of these, like, a lot of our cooperatives are traditional businesses that are bought by the workers when the owner retires because the owner, the the, the workers are like, we know how to run this better than uh-huh. anyone, you know? And so this idea, I don't know, it's just so interesting to me. I want to, like, go back and shake them and be like, you're both wrong. Yeah, you know? totally. And, like, because, like, yeah, you do need to be able to keep your doors open and that makes sense, right? But also, like, I don't know. I think you can do that and be economic. Whatever. It's easy for me to say my job is to talk totally. to the microphone. And one thing that I've seen in some of this research is people talking about how they think that the co-op movement, the countercultural co-op movement, would have succeeded better if people had read more deeply and understood more deeply the history of co-ops. And yeah. that often people thought that they were inventing this thing. Or they knew they weren't. They knew that there were precedents, but they didn't actually look at and study those precedents and what had gone yeah. wrong with them. And I think that's a great lesson for today, too, right? Where, like, studying what's happened in the past that's similar and what went right or wrong can, like, really help do something in the here and now. So, Totally. There is a point to having this show, I say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay, but continue. So, they're, they're... Yeah. So, you start to see this process of what I might call, like, the, I don't know, middle classification happening in newsletters from Tucson's Food Conspiracy Co-op in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So you do still see articles that are important calls to action for things like the anti-nuclear movement, Central American solidarity movements, energy extraction struggles on Diné and Hopi land, take back the night marches. 
But these pieces increasingly share space with articles like, before you buy that dream home. And a whole like mm-hmm. recipe feature that uncritically celebrated Thanksgiving, which goes like way against earlier yeah. articles I found that were like super like, you know, deep solidarity with AIM and like critical about some of these things. Yeah. And at least one issue of the uh, the newsletter from the 1980s drifted even further right running a racist and anti-Indigenous screed on overpopulation by not friend of the pod, Edward Abbey. Oh, God. Uh-huh. Sorry, I just decided that Edward Abbey was not a friend of the pod. But I yeah, think that's you would a, agree. a fair assessment. Yeah. Uh, Edward Abbey is a, an important environmental writer who um, you can actually find a lot of his books in national parks in the Southwest because he wrote a lot about deserts and things. He was also very influential in creating the Earth First movement uh, through his fiction. He was also... Um, and in his younger life, he was more of an anarchist. He was also, uh, at least by the end of his life, deeply misogynist and racist and specifically, like, didn't do a good job about what he thought about borders and overpopulation. I mean, that's the nicest way I could possibly say any of this. And so he's very influential on some people who actually have some good ideas. He's also very influential on some people who have some very bad ideas. And he himself was a piece of shit. Yes. Kind of where yep. I'm at. Yeah, not a fan of Abby at all. Yeah. And so he publishes this article, and um, there, uh, a reader actually wrote in, Maria Abden, and mm-hmm. she refuted his points and reminded Abby that oh, yeah. when the European colonists came here, they wiped out most of us and drove the rest of us onto fertile, unfertile, for the most part, land. And this letter was printed in the next issue, but it didn't receive a reply from either Abby or the editors. Yeah. And you also see this other thing happening— which is by the early 80s, you start to see regular supermarkets stocking natural foods like tofu, granola, and yogurt. And you see big business co-opting the language of the natural foods movement. So Whole Foods actually comes out of the natural food stores in Austin, and some of its first employees had previously worked at the Wheatsville Co-op that I mentioned before. And this kind of competition meant that the co-ops that survived had to do so, basically, by catering primarily to affluent patrons. So today, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden, like, they're competing with regular, they're not just competing with these, like, niche health food stores, but they're competing with regular grocery stores and also these, like, big business health food stores. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it would be so easy to compete by just having the good food for less money than Whole Foods. It just seems like that's just, like, the way. I don't know. Again, I don't run a health food store. I'm sure it's complicated, but it just seems to me. Just be cheaper than Whole Foods. How hard could that be? Totally, yeah. And sometimes I think like Whole Foods is actually cheaper than a lot of. I know. People. And now that I yeah. say that, I'm like, when you're owned by fucking Jeff Bezos, you can make things cheap. You can. I mean, that is the way capitalism yeah, works. Yeah, You can fuck people yeah. over. I guess I'm like thinking of like Whole Foods used to be like very expensive. I don't know, but so are natural food stores. It okay. I don't actually it's have any all answers. Yeah, I don't yeah. have easy answers. I shouldn't come in here trying to tell co-ops how to run themselves. Besides that, they should. Um, not run racist articles. I feel pretty confident about that one. Um, yeah, or like not like criminalize vagrancy or criminalize yeah. homelessness. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah, so I, you know, I, after I had looked at all these newsletters from Tucson, I looked into the Food Conspiracy Co-op today mm-hmm. and it's too expensive for most Tucsonans to shop at. You pay 180 annually to be an owner. There's no option to become a member by volunteering. And the payment gets you discounts, rebates, 
You can attend board meetings to voice your opinion to vote for and vote for board members. You can run for the board, blah, 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 the board, the board, the board. This is really different from how the co-op started as a non-hierarchical volunteer-run organization. Mm-hmm. And this is true of co-ops across the country. And what really, really made me sad is how this radical history has been hidden. So if you go on to the website for the Tucson Co-op, it says that the co-op was born in 1971 when a group of Tucson residents formed a buying club. These original members used their collective purchasing power to get natural food products, which were largely unavailable in stores at the time. And without mentioning at all the explicitly anti-capitalist context of the co-op's founding. Yeah. Which is also just to say that I don't, like, I feel like the first half ended with me being like, the diggers influenced all these cool things. And by contrast, I don't actually have something like super neat and tidy to say about the food co-ops of the 70s. Like, I think the people who founded them were trying to do a really cool thing and like so many other really cool things it got co-opted and watered down yeah um but i think it's important to know this history i don't know i know you shared thoughts earlier but do you have any other thoughts about that i mean i would go back a little bit to the sponsor of this pod real co-ops um Mm -hmm. you know i i think about there are places that are still i mean and some other food's expensive because it's expensive for them to get it Right. And they want to pay living wages to their employees and things like that. But if you can find cooperatives that actually do things well, I haven't been in any of the cities where I would otherwise name in a while. So I don't I don't feel 100 percent confident about naming them. But if you have a cooperative in your city, it's like worth checking out. It is worth figuring out how um, how values aligned you are with it and then supporting it when you can. And I think like one of the ways to find out is that if it's like, well, if the bougie food is expensive, but then they also have the food that isn't expensive and you're like okay you know um and how their food prices compare to other places and then the other thing would be like you can start buying club buying your clubs with your friends you know totally and there's ways to get things in bulk for cheaper and distribute them and evade a lot of the large crappy systems that people have um and so I don't know. I, I think that I find cooperatives, I find, I find food co-ops like actually really interesting to me because I, the the different gut feeling I have walking into one versus another is so different, you know? Yeah. And it's not even necessarily their physical size. I've been in some pretty large co-ops that are like chill. Yeah. You know? And I've been in some tiny ones that are like not chill. It was actually always really easy for me because I was like a dirty, filthy crust punk. And so like... If I walk into a place and they're just like following me around to make sure I'm not shoplifting, I'm like, oh, you actually suck. Whereas when I would walk into a place where people would kind of like recognize that I was sort of a caricature of a certain style of anti-capitalist organizer, it would be like, hey, what's going on? And they would like want to know my name and be nice to me. I'm like, okay, like you're great. You're fine. I understand that sometimes not all food is going to be affordable to all people, which is a problem and we should deal with it. But one of the ways to do that is to get together and buy things in bulk. I don't know. I'm really, I, yeah. I'm really excited for you sharing this history move with me, though, because I didn't know about pretty much any of this. I knew about like cooperatives starting a hundred years ago, and that was like, and then it was like question mark, yeah. question mark, bougie food in the following town, you know? Yeah, they usually have like the good snacks though for people with like dietary restrictions oh, yeah. or or lifestyle food choices and stuff like that, which is really kind of great. Yeah. Actually, I would say that Portland is a place that both of the food co-ops I know account as real co-ops. 
Um, yeah. Just to go on a awesome. limb and hope that they haven't changed in the past, like, yeah. maybe 10 years since I went to either. Yeah, and I should also say, like, I, I feel like we see this specifically in the sort of wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, but there are, like, in Tucson, there's a food share, and the food share uh, pools resources, but both people who can afford to pay as well as, like, donations to be mm-hmm. able to distribute groceries. And it started during the pandemic, right, driving groceries to people's houses, but it's still going strong. And so there are these other models that also exist and that seem to be reemerging that are really exciting and, like, maybe more rooted in, like, in some ways are buying clubs and then in other ways are more rooted, right, in this, like, kind of, like, digger-inspired mutual aid. That's cool. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on and, and teaching us all this stuff. Okay, well, uh, how can people find you or read that book that you wrote all by yourself? Uh, this is me trying to make a joke <laughs> because I called you the writer of, but you're the editor of. Totally. Not yeah, you couldn't I, write a book. I'm on Instagram at, at Rena Rye. I'm mm-hmm. the editor of Nourishing Resistance. I also wanted to make a plug that I wrote an article specifically about those Tucson Food Co-op newsletters, and it's coming out in the first print issue of Living and Fighting, which is a journal, a radical journal based here in the Southwest. And by the time this episode airs, you should be able to purchase a copy, and you can go to livingandfighting.net to find out more about that. Um, and I also have a little, a few um, references as well as things that inspired me that uh, will appear in the show notes of this episode. So, Hell yeah. Uh, Sophie, you got anything to plug? Listen to It Could Happen here. Now yeah. more than ever. That's true. Uh-huh. Uh, I want to plug... I don't really want to plug that I'm on social media, but I am on social media. Um, mostly Instagram these days. And I have a substack, com. I don't know. I never type in URLs. I just Google things. <laughs> Me too. And that's a good way to find out what I think about things besides listening to this. Or hear me every Sunday now on this feed and It Could Happen Here feed, reading you stories for the Cool Zone Media Book See you next week. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com. Or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. 
It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.